David. We're in the life of David. Here's what's been going on, if you haven't been here the last couple weeks. David is attacked by King Saul, his father-in-law, trying to straight up murder him. Saul is chasing him around the country with hundreds and thousands of men. It is not a good time for David. David gets Saul in a cave, the guy who's trying to kill him, and he has an opportunity to run him through, to just stab him with a knife. But he doesn't. He just cuts off a little piece of his robe and says, Saul, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Well, Saul says, thank you so much, David. I'm not going to harm you. Guess what? A couple chapters later, Saul attacks David again. Same type of situation. David, again, like he's in a cave. Saul's sleeping, and one of David's friends has a spear, and he's like, let me do it, David. Just let me run him through. And David's like, no, we can't do it. He's the Lord's anointed. So once again, David spares the life of Saul. Saul wakes up, David's standing there on the, on the top of the hill, and he's like, Saul, I could have killed you, but I didn't because I listened to the Lord. And Saul says, David, listen to me. Like, I will never do this again. I will never harm you again. I swear I will never touch you again. I'm done. I'm out. I'm not going to chase you anymore. Well, what happens is Saul and David never see each other again as long as they live. That's the end of the Saul and David story. Saul keeps his word. He never attacks David. But let's see how David takes the whole situation. In 1 Samuel 27, you can read along in your Bibles or on the screen, says, verse 1, David said in his heart, now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines, and Saul will despair of me to seek me any more in any part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. David was a man after God's own heart. But one of the things we'll realize with David as we're studying him is that David had a lot of faults. And here we see David doubting his deliverance. That's the first point. The difference is David's got a problem, but he's not responding with faith. He's responding with fear. You know what I'm talking about? He's running away from his problems instead of running to God. He thinks, even though Saul never touches him again, David thinks, Saul's going to one day kill me. He's going to take my life. He's going to straight up murder me. But the question is, why did David doubt? There was a prophecy from God that said, David, one day you will be king. This is like not just from Samuel. This is from God. David, one day you will be king. It was assurance. It's God saying, I'm in control. I remember one day I was out in my cousin's backyard at their home in Oregon. And we had a little cousin named Matt. And Matt was super annoying. You know, me and my cousin James, he was like six. I was like, or he was like seven. I'm like six years old. And we just want to like play army men in the backyard. We just want to hang out. We just want to have a good time. And Matt is like three years old super annoying. He just comes up, and he's like, can I play with you guys? Can I play with you guys? And we're like, no, man, leave us alone. Leave us alone. Like, we wanted to have our bro time. We wanted to just be by ourselves. So we went to Uncle Jim's uh, greenhouse. It was like this glass shed where he would grow his plants. And we're hiding in there from Matt, and we're laughing, and we're looking out. And, like, it's totally glass, so you can see inside, but we're hiding behind this dresser. And, and we look, and we see Matt. He's just, like, looking for us. He's like, where are those guys? Where are those guys? He's super mad. 
And we're just laughing. We're like, ha, 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 Matt is so stupid. Well, the next thing that happened was Matt went, like, totally Hulk on us. And he, like, it was weird. He's, like, three years old. But he grabs this boulder that's, like, five times the size of him. He's just like, Aah! And he runs towards the glass house, and he just chucks at us. And it, like, breaks. Glass goes everywhere. And I'm just, we're, we're freaking out. And my cousin James looks at me, and he's like, Aaron. I'm like, what? And I had blood just running down my face, and I could feel it. He's like, you've got a giant chunk of glass stuck in your forehead. And I just start literally screaming like a little, I was like, ah, ah, and I'm like running up the hill as fast as I can, like tripping and falling, probably like face planting it, like pushing the glass deeper into my skull, just running up the hill. And I, and I get up to my mom, and I'm like, oh, there's glass, and I totally just pass out. And when I woke up, uh, I'm like lying there, and everyone's like around me, like, Aaron, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, 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 I'm okay. And I'm like, oh, there's glass in my hand. They're like, no, 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 it's okay. We got it out. We got some tweezers, and, and we pulled out the glass. But the problem was, I was still dealing with this phantom pain, where basically, I still felt like there was glass in my head, even though there wasn't. And no matter what anyone told me, I was just like, there's glass in my head, there's glass in my head, there's glass in my head. Even though I had been delivered from the glass, even though the problem had been removed, I doubted that I had really been delivered. And I think sometimes we can do that. I think sometimes we can go through trials in our life, we can go through hard times, we can go through problems in our life, and we doubt the deliverance of God. We, we doubt that God is really good. We doubt that in the future we actually win. I've talked to you guys about this before. If you're in a battle and you're in a war and you're freaking out because you're like, are we going to win? Are we going to win? Am I going to die? And some guy shows up with a crystal ball and says, hey, look into the future. And you look and you see, oh, our army wins. I do not die. We survive. Like, we're victorious. You would fight hard in that battle because you'd be like, I am invincible. According to the future, I don't lose. I, I, like, if you knew that future was unchangeable, like, no matter what you did, that future was going to come to pass, you'd be stoked. You'd be out there fighting on the battlefield like a superhero. Why do we go through our Christian life doubting our deliverance? The battle's already won, the Bible says. We can see in the future, we can look in the end, and we can see that Satan is destroyed. We are delivered. If you're sitting here today wondering, man, will I ever be free of this sin that I'm struggling with, this, this, this temptation, this problem, this trial, will I ever be free from it? Newsflash, spoiler alert, yes, you are one day delivered from it. Yes, one day you are free. When you are with Jesus in heaven, you are free of all the trials of this earth, all the problems of this earth. You're in a perfect body. You're perfectly healthy. Everything is perfectly wonderful. So don't doubt your deliverance because not only, I mean, I'm not saying like, yeah, just you'll die one day and then everything will be perfect, but God has a plan for your life. And as you walk in his will, he's gonna deliver you of the things that you're struggling with. Unbelief is a sin that we're all capable of. I've been there. I've doubted God's deliverance for my life. I've doubted God's promises for my life. And when there's a battle on the outside, on the inside, there's either going to be fear or faith. That's the reality. When the battle's on the outside, there's either going to be fear or faith on the inside. And it's always fear that pushes us away from the Lord and into making a deal with the devil. That's the second point. Never make a deal with the devil. Now, you might be thinking, like, well, 
obviously I'm not going to make a deal with the devil. I'm a Christian kid. I'm not going to like hold a little candlelit seance in my room and like summon the devil and be like, devil, let's make a deal. I'll sign a contract in blood. You you guys are like, I'm not going to do that. That'd be crazy. That'd be stupid. But I mean something different by making a deal with the devil. Let's uh, look at 1 Samuel 27 verse 2. It says, David arose and went over with the 600 men who were with him to Ashish, the son of Mach, king of Gath. So David dwelt in Ashish at Gath, he and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two armies, Ahinoam, the Jezreelite, I can't read it, and Abigail of the Carmelites. Awesome. Nabal's widow. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. They say, hey, David, or Saul, David has run to the land of the Philistines, so Saul's like, all right, I'm not going there. I'm not going to chase him. I'm done. So verse 5, then David says to Ashish, Ashish, the king of the Philistines, the king of God's enemies. He says, if I have now found favor in your eyes, I just imagine him like bowing down before the king, looking up like, my lord, my liege, if I have found favor in your eyes, then then give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there, for why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So Ashish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore, Ziklag belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now, the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. David is living in the land of the enemy. Anyone know who lived in Gath? Goliath. Like, the, Goliath the Philistine. He's at the hometown. Like, think of David's roots, his beginnings, killing the, the chief Philistine of the army of the Philistines. And now he's running and living in the, in the land of the Philistines. Guys, it's really, it's a lack of trust of God to, to run away from his problems to the, and the only place he feels safe is the land of the enemy. That's really showing a lack of trust in God. I remember a story of some soldiers and they're fighting in World War II and they end up invading Germany. This is after the end of the war. So Germany lost. So some uh, British shoulder, shoulders, some British shoulders were like, they gained consciousness and they were like floating around. It was weird. No, uh, some British soldiers were in Germany and they were just raiding the Nazi labs and all these things. And they're in this laboratory and they've had a long day. They've had a hard time fighting the battle. So they stop and they see this carton of eggs in the Nazi lab. And they think, oh, time for a little egg toss. So they grab the eggs and they're just like tossing them back and forth and laughing. Oh, ha, 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 ha. They're just having a good time. Like, oh, don't break the egg. And they're just, they're tossing these eggs. All of a sudden, a Nazi scientist runs in. One of the guys left behind during the war. He runs in. It's his lab. He sees them tossing the eggs and he goes, nine, 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 what are you doing? And they're like, they're like, what's the problem? And he tells them, those eggs were an experimental weapon that contained a deadly pathogen, and if one of those broke, you would infect all of your men and, like, everyone in Germany within a second and kill everybody. And that's what playing with sin is like. Sometimes we get involved with sin, and we're like, ah, it's not a big deal. It's just a little thing. It's just a little sin, just a little compromise, and we're tossing around this virus, this deadly disease that is trying to break open and kill us. David goes even further than just moving to the land of the Philistines and saying, hey, what if you give me like a city to be in charge of? I'm a warrior. I could be on your team, king of the Philistines. That's 
crazy. He's David. He's like, I could be on your team. I could fight for you. Give me a town. Give me something, and I will fight for you. He bows down before the king and says, if I found favor in your eyes, give me a place that I can stay. I'm your servant. And he sets him up in Ziklag, this town on the outskirts. He gives it to David. David and his 600 men move into Ziklag. And now David has set up shop in the land of the enemy. Now remember where David came from. I mean, look at this story. In verse 42 of 1 Samuel 17, just 10 chapters ago, when the Philistine, this is Goliath, when he looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cussed out David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. How does David respond? Verse 45, David says to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I, ha, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God, capital G, of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. He does. He totally chops his head off and, like, carries it around. Super creepy. And this day I will give the carcass of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. Then this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Think of the bravery, the boldness of this guy challenging the enemy in the name of the Lord. And now this once brave dude is bowing down before the enemy. He's, he's just kneeling down, looking up at the king of Philistines, saying, hey, I have nowhere else to go. Take me in. I'll serve you. I'll help you. Where did his bravery go? See, the thing, guys, is a deal with the devil doesn't always mean the obvious. It doesn't always mean sign this contract and then you'll get amazing guitar powers. Like, so that, that's like the legend of like... Uh, there's like this, uh, this old blues musician and there's like a legend that he like signed a contract with the devil and like sold his soul to the devil and now he plays amazing blues music. Well, now he's dead. But back then he played amazing blues music. And it's like, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about that kind of compromise. I'm talking about a deal with the devil in my book is compromising bold Christ following in exchange for temporary comfort and safety. And I think we all do it. We compromise brave following, like going where God leads, submitting to his will for our lives. We trade that in all the time for, you know, I just want to be comfortable. It reminds me of the story of in Narnia. Uh, how many of you guys are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia? How many of you guys saw the first movie, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe? So you've got the, the brothers, Peter, Susan, uh, Sally, Billy, I can't remember, but there was this one little dweeb named Edmund. Do you guys remember Edmund? He was like, the, there's always like the whiny one. Edmund was like, I don't want to go to a magical world in a closet. He was just like super whiny, super annoying. And, and uh, I remember the scene where the brothers and sisters are like wandering off. And this evil queen shows up. And she's like, who are you, son of Adam? He's like, I'm Edmund. She's like, why don't you sell your brothers and sisters safety to me? He's like... She's like, I'll give you candy, Turkish delight. And he's like, okay. And he, like, they, she gives him a blanket and like a sleigh ride and like a hot, a cup of hot cocoa and some Turkish delight. And he's just selling his brothers and sisters out. And that's what I think of. It, it's, it's compromise. 
David is a guy who once challenged the enemies of the Lord. Now he's compromising because he wants safety. He wants comfort. He wants his own town. He wants to set up shop. He doesn't want to have to worry about Saul. So he says, you know, instead of trusting God and saying, I'm going to stay out in the wilderness until God tells me to go somewhere, he runs to the land of the Philistines, bows down before the king, and compromises. And guys, I think we do it all the time. Think about the high points in your life. Then was camp. Just happened a couple weeks ago. And it's like, I'm on fire. I'm reading. I'm praying. I'm talking to the Lord. But what's right now? It's school, right? That's what started. And so instead of, I'm on fire, I'm reading, I'm praying, I'm going to go tell people, people who don't even know Jesus. I'm going to go tell them what God is showing me and, and let the, the fire spread. No, instead it's, it's, it's fear. It's fear of people seeing your face. It's, it's hiding out. It's fear of being an outcast. It's I'll blend in and say these words. I'll blend in and I'll sneak this drink. I'll blend in. I'll take this drug. I'll tell this sexually laced joke because I know it gets the big laughs. And as we're doing it, our conscience is getting seared and burned because we're giving up bold Christ following in the name of comfort and compromise. And I see it even, I mean, one of the worst things to me is, I mean, I work here at the school, Calvary Christian. One of the worst things I see all the time is Christian kids missing out on an opportunity to grow closer to the Lord because they don't want to be seen. Like, to be one of, I'll just be honest, to be a cool kid here at this school, to be one of the cool kids, what you got to do is you have to show a lack of interest in the things of the Lord. Because you're like, I'm at a Christian school, but I'm not like... I'm not, like, hardcore. I'm not, like, one of those, like, homeschool Christian dweebs or anything. Like, no offense if you're a homeschooler. But, like, that's just the vibe I get from some of the non-homeschool kids here is, like, I'm not like that. I'm not, like, an awkward, weird Christian weirdo. Like, the people who are seen as cooler, I remember with uh, the freshman class I taught last year. It was such a sweet class, but, but I just remember... Um, I just remember, like, seeing very clearly in some of you guys just this desire to not be looked at as some wishy-washy, weirdo Christian kid, but a desire to set yourself apart from being at a Christian school and to be taken seriously by the world. And it's sad because you're missing out on what God has for you to live a full, adventurous life walking with Jesus Christ. Maybe then in the summer, you came out street witnessing for the first time. And who came out with us street witnessing? Any of you guys? Some of you guys went out with us. That was awesome. James, you were out there with us. Um, we had like 20 people, um, I think, and, but some of them aren't here. But it was so cool. I was talking to them, and they are like, yeah, it was the first time I ever did something like that. But maybe you're out there sharing your faith boldly, but now that you're in school, it's, it's, like, it's like I'm hiding that. Like, I don't want people to know that about me. I've got to establish my identity. I've got to let people know who I am. I want to tell you guys a story. It's a true story from Sacramento. 19-year-old Mike. I'm going to tell this story really quick. 19-year-old Mike never knew that choosing to give someone a ride could be fatal. That means deadly. It was a simple car ride. Picked up Sam and Joseph. They drove to Maddie's house, and they picked her up and headed across town. They stopped for gas. Maddie's a teenage mom. She says, can we pick up my son from my mom's house? 
Joey says, I want to go to Walmart. They all say, but let's eat first. Let's get something to eat. So they stop at McDonald's. Mike, the driver, is 19 years old. He's never been in trouble with the police. He's never had any difficulty at all. Sam, 19 years old, is sitting next to him in the passenger seat. Joseph is 16 years old. Maddie's 18. They're both sitting in the back seat. Now, Joseph had been released three weeks before from a boy's ranch in Sacramento because he was a repeat juvenile offender. He had run-ins with the law. After burgers, they would go to Walmart, and on the way, they saw a teenager alone at the bus stop. That's when the trouble starts. Joe, the repeat offender, just released. He says, hey, pull over, Mike. Let's go check that guy out and see what he has on him. It was then Mike made a decision that would change his life forever, the life of himself, the life of everyone in the car. It would cause his death. It would cause prison for two others and scarred lives for everyone involved. Mike turned the car around and parked at the bus stop. Joe grabbed a fake gun. He came out of the car. Maddie says, no, this is stupid. We need to leave now. But Joe wouldn't listen. Sam gets out of the car, too. They walk over to the bus stop, and they rob the teenage boy. They think that was so easy. We just showed him the gun. He handed over everything. Easy peasy. They run back to the car. Mike drives off, and... Joe starts asking, hey, let's stop at other places. Let's stop at my friend's house. Let's stop at this guy's house. Maddie's like, I just want to go home. I don't, I don't want anything to do with this. I want to see my kid. Mike keeps driving to Walmart. Now, they park, and a police car parks next to them. Officer Kevin Howland walks up and starts asking some questions. He says, there was a robbery at a bus stop reported three minutes ago. Someone identified the car. Your car matches the description. What do you have to say for yourselves? The talk doesn't go well. The officer says, do you have any weapons? Mike's sitting there, and he's like, I can't believe this is happening to me. He doesn't know the legal ramifications of what's going on. Words start coming out of the officer's mouth like accessory and guilty by association, and he knows that he's in trouble. Mike's not innocent because he drove the car. He made that U-turn. He didn't know the consequences of what he would do, but he did it. He knew it was wrong, and now he's seeing the result. Cops. Questions. Suddenly, Joe shouts, hey, man, let's get out of here. Let's move. Let's move. Mike, he can't think. Everything's happening too fast. He thinks, I'm, can't, I'm in trouble. Maybe I can get away. Maybe I can get out of this trouble. Joe's yelling, go, go, go. So then everything goes crazy. Mike slams the car in reverse and crushes the cop car behind him. Officer Howland is almost crushed himself, jumps out of the way. He pulls a gun. Mike puts the car in drive, steps on the gas, and... Officer Howland fires eight shots at the car. Glass shatters. The car crashes into a palm tree. Silence. And in an instant, Mike is dead. And anyone in the car would tell you it wasn't Mike's fault. He didn't start it. Mike's a good guy. Mike wasn't trying to rob anybody. He wasn't trying to kill anybody. But Mike made several mistakes. Behind the wheel, he made the last mistake that cost his life. Mike died of gunshot wounds to the chest and the right arm. One bullet made it past Mike, hit Joe only in the wrist. The people who knew what happened said, the bullet hit the wrong guy. Should have been Joe. Maddie was released the day after. The day after, Sam was brought in on felony charges for the robbery. Joe faced similar charges. He was 16 years old, but he was prosecuted as an adult. But Mike wouldn't live to face any charges because Mike's decision that morning was his last. My main point in this story is who was behind the wheel? Who was it? It was Mike. Mike had control in that situation. But he made the wrong choice. 
God has allowed you choices, and the enemy is going to throw out suggestions, just like he did to Adam and Eve. Here's the fruit. Take, taste, eat. But we don't have to listen to him. God has given us the ability to choose to walk with him. He's given us the ability to make the choice for ourselves. What I want to challenge you guys is never make a deal with the devil. And here's one of the best reasons to never make a deal with the devil. The reason is because Jesus has already made the best deal of all time. Do you remember Jesus was tempted in the desert? Satan offers him, Jesus, if you just obey me, if you just bow down, you can have riches. You can have rulings. You can have kingdoms. But Jesus says, no, do not try to make a deal with the Son of God. For you guys, my challenge to you is don't make these little compromises. Don't make deals with the devil. You know why? It's because Jesus already made the best deal of all time. His death for your life, his blood for your freedom, his sacrifice for your salvation. That is the greatest deal of all time. You don't have to be afraid of what the enemy has in store. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The Bible says resist the devil and he'll flee from you. And I know every single one of you, just like me, are being tempted on a regular basis to get off the path of walking with Jesus and to get onto the path of compromise and comfort that leads to death. But we don't have to be afraid. The Lord is our light and our salvation. Whom can we fear? The Bible says resist the devil and he'll flee from you. I'm just going to do a quick side note because this is important to me. I learned this from Ben Corson's dad, John Corson. He says, has there, I mean, if you're in a battle, has there ever been a time where just ignoring the enemy makes them go away? No. If you're on the battlefield and someone's shooting at you and you're like, I'm just not going to think about the the enemy. I'm just, I'm just going to ignore them. You're going to hit by an arrow. That's the way a battle works. The Bible says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. But I don't know about you, but if you're like me, my strategy is usually just ignore the devil and hope he goes away. I don't want to think that thought. I don't want to say that word. I don't want to get angry at that guy. I'm just just, going to get it out of my mind. And all of a sudden, what happens is later on, those thoughts, those temptations, those feelings, those sins, those struggles come back stronger. You know why? It's because we're just ignoring the enemy, hoping he'll go away. It's a battle. He's not going to go away. So one of the things John Corson says is we need to fight back. And one of the best things I've ever heard, and it's been a blessing to my life, is strategy to fight back from the enemy. He attacks you. You get tempted. You get angry. You get the, the urge to lie about something. Whatever your sin is, urge to gossip, I mean, whatever. Sin. Instead of just going, oh, I don't want to think about that, and then it comes back later, Call it out for what it is. That's sin. That's anger. That's gossip. That's lying. That's lust. That's disrespect for my parents. Call it out. Name it for what it is. Then get with Jesus and pray against it. Lord, I have a problem. I'm disrespectful towards my parents. Lord, I have a problem. I'm lazy in school. Lord, I have a problem. I I get angry. Help me, Jesus, help me. Call it out, pray for it, and then pray for like five other people that you know and just pray for them. Whatever you're struggling with, Lord, I pray for this friend, this friend, this friend. Help them not to have anger. Lord, I pray for this friend, this friend, this friend. Help them to have respect for their parents. Lord, I pray for her and her and her. Help them with what I'm struggling with. 
And it's like the enemy is shooting these fiery darts of temptation, and it's like you're like catching them and like throwing them back in his face and going, ha, 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 ha. Like prayer is amazing and powerful. Throw something back in the face of the enemy is what I'm saying. Don't run from the enemy, but stand and fight. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you is what the Bible says. Let's stop running. So the next point is compromise leads to captivity. David is locked in with the enemy. He is living with the enemy. He's giving a place in the enemy's camp, and he ends up becoming a mercenary for the enemy. That means he's a hired gun. He's a fighter for the enemy. 1 Samuel 27 says, David sent and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gizarites, and the Amalekites. For those nations were the inhabitants of the land from old, and as you go to Shur, even as, as the land of Egypt, whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, the clothes, and returned and came to good old King Ashish. David is slaughtering people. He's going around. He's raiding towns and villages, killing people, taking their food, their animals, their clothes, their gold, and he wants to keep it a secret. Verse 10, King Aetius would say, so David, where have you made a raid today? And David would say, oh, you know, against the uh, southern area of uh, Judah, or against the southern area of the Jeremites, or against the uh, southern area of the Kenites. Yeah. And then David would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, this is what David did. And thus was his behavior for the year and a half that he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. Guys, I spent hour. I was going to say hours, but I looked at my notes. The truth is I spent an hour. I spent hour, one, singular, trying to find a reason to justify this. Like I was, because David's a hero. You know, David and Goliath, King David, yeah. And I was reading this, I was like, there's got to be a good reason why David killed all these people. And I started reading commentaries, and I started just checking it out. I was calling different pastors, and eventually I talked with my dad, and my dad confirmed what I had been suspecting. And guys, it's stuff like this that makes me not like David. And I'm just being honest. Like, I'm a pastor, and it's crazy. Like, I love David when he's killing Goliath, but during this period of his life, I don't like David. Like, he is in a villain time period of his life, doing bad things. I can't justify what he did. I talked to my dad. Dad said, Aaron, David is at his lowest point. He's not trusting God. He's hiding out in fear. He's being selfish. He's like setting up in this town. His men need food. His men need water. His men need clothes. So he's going and attacking other people, stealing their stuff, and then he kills men, women, and probably children because he doesn't want any survivors. He doesn't want anyone from these towns to report back to King Ashish and say, hey, did you hear what David did? He totally killed our town. He wants the king to think that David is going around killing his own people. He's like, yeah, I'm just on the outskirts of Judah. You know, Israel and Judah were next to each other. He's like, I'm just going around killing Jews because, you know, I'm like with you guys now. When really, he's attacking all these other countries and he doesn't want the king to know. He's covering up his tracks. He's lying. Compromise leads to captivity. You might be thinking David is doing well, but his soul is in captivity to the enemy. And so will yours be too if you compromise. 
If you continue to sin over and over and over again, you will be led to a place where the enemy has complete hold over you. Think of this. This is what King Asher says. This is one of the heaviest verses in the chapter. Verse 12. So King Asher believed David, saying, he has made his people Israel utterly abhor him. Therefore, he will be my servant forever. That's deep. That's scary. And that's what the enemy says when he looks at a Christian who, yes, is saved and going to heaven, but a Christian who is compromising, living in sin, refusing to go to the Lord and even ask for help with their problems, but instead just living and, and not giving their sin to the Lord. The enemy looks at you and says, yes, you have made yourself an utter abomination to your people. Therefore, you will be my servant forever. There's a really simple story of a monkey and a coconut. I, that just went from like really like dark and like scary to like, yeah, a monkey and a coconut. It's a simple story about sin. It helps me understand how stupid I can be sometimes. There was a scientist who ended up on an island and he decided to do an experiment on some monkeys. So, kind of, kind of weird, weirdo. Anyway, he grabbed some coconuts and he like, he carved in some holes in the coconut like a bowling ball hole. So the monkey wants the coconut. It wants the juice inside. Is, is that what's in coconuts? Juice? I don't know. It wants whatever's inside that coconut. So he, the monkey goes over the coconut and like, it's like, oh, ooh, ooh, ah, I think. And he, he sticks his finger in the hole like a bowling ball and he wants what's in there. So he's like grabbing onto it, but he can't get what's inside. And he's trapped as long as he's holding onto that coconut. And as he's like trying to get inside, he's like bashing it against his head, like just smashing himself in the face, like trying to get what's inside the coconut. And it's like, dude, just let go of the coconut. But as long as he's holding on to it, he's in the power and the captivity. And in the same way with sin, compromise leads to captivity. We stick our hand in the coconut, we grab on, and as long as we're holding on to it, trying to live our life as Christians, trying to walk with the Lord, we're just bashing this creepy coconut against our face. There's this awesome quote by C.S. Lewis, like one of my favorite theologians, I can't, I just want to share this with you. This is C.S. Lewis. He says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. That is great. That is amazing. C.S. Lewis is saying, when we're messing about with sin, we're like a kid who's just, we're making mud pies in the ghetto. We're just on the ground making these little dirt pies, and we're like, this is so awesome. Like, this is all, like, this is life. There's, like, manure mixed in with the dirt and, like, flies swarming all around. So we're just like, yes, mud pies. And then somebody comes up, and they're like, hey, how about we take your whole family out to the sea? We'll get some jet skis. We'll get some inner tubes. We'll get, like, a whole private beach to yourself. You can go fishing. You can go swimming. How many of you guys love the water? Like, you're just water people. Imagine that. Like, your own private beach island where you just go out on a boat and just do whatever you want. But you're just like, no, oh, I'm good with my mud pile. This is really great. I love it. And you're just like, 
blah. Like, that, that, that's what he's saying in a much more eloquent way. But I had to, I had to bring it down to our level. Here, here's the thing. Guys, I, I'd been a Christian a long time, started to get bored with it in my teenage years. I was tired of going to Bible studies, tired of praying, tired of what had become the routine in my life. The boredom was like an alarm going off, and I knew it signaled that my love for God was cooling down, and I didn't want that to happen. In the book of Revelation, Jesus rebukes a church in Laodicea for leaving their first love, and I remembered how passionate I was in junior high. In junior high, when I was a kid, oh man, I was journaling, I was lifting my hands in worship, not for people to see me, but because I genuinely loved Jesus. I was praying often. I didn't want to be like that church in Laodicea who left their first love. So I thought, as a, as a high schooler, what is happening to me? Pastor's kid, Aaron Salvato, am I, am I growing cold? And then I realized one of Satan's strategies is to take God's covenant with us, which is always new and fresh, and turn it into something that is cold and stale. And, and, and he tells us, your Christianity is just religion. It's just religiosity. It's just being good because that's what they say to do, be a good person, and you got to be good, and you got to measure up to the rules. And it makes it old and boring. And pretty soon, we yawn and agree and go, yeah, you're right. Christianity is pretty boring. But if we accept those thoughts planted by Satan, our faith will grow old and boring to us. We have to be constantly on guard against our thought life, the thoughts of the enemy. The Bible says set your mind on the things of God. Turn your mind towards him. We need to learn to hear the difference between God's voice and Satan's voice and our own thoughts. When we know how to recognize a lie from the enemy, it'll be that much easier to tell him, get lost. If you saw a dog digging through your trash, would you sit by and think, gee, I really hope that dog will stop digging through my trash? No, you'll, you'll kick that dog and say, get out of here, you stinking mutt, get out of my trash. It's the same thing with Satan. He's a dirty dog digging through your mind, trying to just bring trash dragged into your mind, and don't just sit there and go, man, I'm being oppressed by the enemy. Like, get him out of there. Go to the Lord. Go to the only one who can free you of that. Set your mind on the things of God. I've been just reading my Bible so much lately, and it's been amazing because it hasn't been like a, I've got to do this because I'm a Christian, but it's been like, Jesus, I'm so in love with you. I thought of my relationship with my wife, and I thought, like, man, it would really bum me out if once or twice a week my wife hung out with me for like two hours, but then like all the rest of the week she was just like, like hey, hey, babe, I got to go. Hey, oh, hey, hey, honey. And I'm like, hey, Brooklyn, let's talk. She's like, oh, I got to go. Like, that would, that would make me so sad. And I thought of my own relationship with the Lord. I mean, what does that look like? Like, studying about him so I can talk to other people about him, but then not actually talking to him myself. And guys, you struggle with it. I struggle with it too. I'm in a place right now where the Lord is helping me so much to turn to him and his word as like, not like, this is my Christian duty, but this is like my time with the one who created me and loves me. And if any of you guys ever want to talk about your devotions and what God is showing you, I would be thrilled. Let's go out to coffee. Let's go out to lunch. Let's sit around in a group and just talk about what God is doing in our lives. I would be thrilled with that. I'm going to ask Scott to come back up here, and we're going to close in a song in a minute as I finish. A couple songs, if we have time, would be awesome to worship the Lord. Guys, there's a story of a guy who 
was fighting in the Civil War, couldn't decide what outfit to wear. Or no, that's wrong. I messed that story up. <laughs> He's like, I just don't know. I mean, what would be the best for fighting the... Yeah, no. <laughs> he, uh, he can't decide what side he wants to fight on. He's like, the North or the South? I don't know. So he puts on the pants of the North, and he puts on the jacket of the South. And guess what happened? He goes out and he gets shot by both sides. God wants you on his side. Don't be the type of kid who has one foot in the world, making compromises, and one foot, I won't even say in the church, because some of you guys view the church as a building where you go to get talked out about Jesus. But I'll say, don't have one foot in the world and one foot in the family of God. And that's what this is. We're family. Brothers, sisters, we love you guys. We want you to understand that Jesus wants you on his side. That's amazing. That's like Kobe O'Brien saying, I want you on my team. Like, we're not worthy. We're not good enough. We make mistakes. We mess up. But God loves us so much that he asks us to be in his family. With David, he doubted his deliverance. And I think some of you guys might be doing that today. I think you might be going through something School's starting up. You're getting stressed out already. Maybe some of you guys have had very hard things happen in your life recently, and you're doubting. You're like, I don't, I don't know if God can save me from this. I don't know if God can deliver me from this. And God would just say, it's already done. Like, I'm past, present, future. Like, I see the ending. You get delivered. And more importantly, when I died on that cross for you, I delivered you more than you could ever possibly deliver, be delivered of anything. We need to remember that. God wants you on his side. And very simply today, I want you to think as you're worshiping, am I on his side? Not like, oh, am I a Christian? Yeah, I mean, we're Christians here. But am I fighting in the battle of the Lord? I'm gonna share something with you guys really quick and then we'll worship. Because I just wanna show you guys how awesome it is to be on the side of the Lord. There's a battle out there for souls. People all around are dying and going to hell. We took the youth group out to Imperial Beach. The reason we went was because we were like, let's go someplace we don't know anything about. No GPSs, no relying on technology. Let's just go and pray and rely on the Holy Spirit. We go down, we pray, we eat, we have a good time. Then we go out, we start telling people about Jesus. We met two skaters. Their names were Hagen and Christian. We start talking to these guys. All of a sudden, that two skaters turns into eight skaters. They skate up, they're talking to us. It's me, uh, James Frizee, Emma Selling, and her friend Simone. And we're talking to these skaters, just tell them about Jesus. James is talking, Emma's talking, uh, Simone's talking, I'm talking. We're just letting them know about Jesus. And by the end of the talk, it was amazing because I could see in their eyes they were listening, these sophomore freshman skater dudes. And I did something I've never done before in a group. I said, it was really awkward, I was like, any of you guys want Jesus? Like, do any of you guys want us to pray for you that you'd have Jesus in your heart right now? And right away, a little Hagen shoots up his hand. He's just like, me, I want Jesus in my life. And then the rest of them follow. Out of, it wasn't the whole group of guys, but it was about four of them. And oh, it was so cool. We were all like tears in our eyes afterwards. I just got a text on Wednesday from Hagen. He's like, dude, ever since we prayed, I feel like a brand new person. I got a Bible, I'm going to church. He's like, can you come down to visit us again and bring some kids and talk to us? We just want to know more about Jesus. We just want to follow him. 
guys, Jesus is real, and he's doing things out in the world. Be on his side. Be involved in what he's doing. Like, dedicate yourself this school year to whatever God has for me. I'm going to live for him. I'm going to do what he calls me to do. I'm going to step out in faith and live for him. And watch what he does with your life. Love you guys. Hope you're encouraged. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just want to worship you right now. As we enter into this time, I pray you'd speak to our heart. Just drive this message in. Help us to know how much we're loved. Help us to know how precious we are to you. And God, I pray none of us would find ourselves on the wrong side by the end of today. Help us, God, to dedicate ourselves to you. Not that we're going to be perfect, because we're not going to be. But help us to be dedicated to you that we're going to follow you no matter what. When we fall down, you'll pick us up. Lord, I pray that you would inspire these students on a daily basis, whether they spend hours in devotions or not, that you would clearly speak to their heart things for them to do for your kingdom, loving others, pouring out on others, telling others about you. Help them to know they're not just to sit back and wait till they die and go to heaven, but that you have things for them to do for your kingdom here. We want to live for your kingdom. We want to live for you. We love you, Jesus. We worship you now in your name.